following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. As we come around, uh, as we continue our series, we come around God's Word, um, I'm challenged this morning, I'm excited, a little bit nervous, um, because this this stronghold uh, is different to the other one. So if you're joining us today, we're, we're six weeks into a series as we launched this year, talking about growing in God and maturing in our faith. And uh, we've looked at how we can get rid of clutter and junk in our lives. And we've kind of settled on this idea of footholds from Ephesians 4. And we've looked at a whole bunch of different things that we can allow into our hearts and into our lives that can bring us into bondage. We've looked at things like pride and and pain and unforgiveness. Uh, we looked at our past. Uh, last week I spoke about how our past and generational stuff, um, even our own sin and shame and, and failures and guilt, how they can kind of bind us uh, in different ways and how the enemy can use those things to bring us uh, into all kinds of oppression and harassment and, and uh, kind of struggles in different areas of our lives because of these things that we haven't dealt with and resolved and so we've been on this journey of looking at decluttering our hearts and removing these blockages and these footholds and these obstacles because we don't want to give the enemy room. We don't want to give him opportunity. We don't want to allow him access into parts of our heart, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And we want to be aware, as the Bible says, aware of the devil's schemes and to then be proactive in how we live so we can live in the fullness of the life that Jesus came to give us. This morning, I mean, the ones we've looked at so far have predominantly been kind of, I guess, footholds that have affected us or the things that other people have done to us or have been things that even our own attitudes have brought negative consequences into our life or our family history that we've not really had any control over. But today, I want to focus on one that's really about what we've done to other people. It's flipping it around and, and thinking about how have we done things that have really offended and hurt other people. And so I want to look at the foothold of power. Power. And this is a really interesting one because we can all find ourselves in positions of power in, in different seasons of our life, in different ways. Power can come simply because of our physical stature, because we're big people, and there's a sense of power that comes with that. Uh, we always get nervous when we see big people in dark alleys simply because they're just intimidating. They could be like James, Jared, who's the gentlest giant in our church. <laughs> but, you know, you put the right clothes on him and outside a nightclub, and man, he would just be really intimidating. And, uh, and, and, and when he crosses his arms and just looks at you, you know. And it can come that way. It can come from a position that we might hold uh, in an organization or in our family. It can come through a cultural power. If you're white-skinned in different contexts, you can have power. It can come through your age. In, in some cultures, the more gray hair you have, the more power you have. Um, it can come through financial success. Uh, money gives you power, gives you influence, gives you control. It can come through intellect. The, the more letters you have behind your name, the more recognition, respect, power you have. It can come in all kinds of different ways. Uh, recently at our men's event, uh, we talked about the idea of headship. And uh, wives, I want to tell you, if I'm being misquoted and misrepresented, 
please come and see me and I will clarify exactly what I said in context. Because I heard that some men went home and were starting to tell their wives a few things and they were putting those words in my mouth. And I did not say anything like what they're saying I said. So please come and talk to me and I'll clarify exactly what I said. And I told them actually to serve you. That's what I told them to, to do. But power, we can find ourselves in all kinds of situations. And generally, because we've received power handled badly, many of us in our workplace, even in church, or in our families, or wherever it might be, we have a negative perception of power generally. And we're all probably familiar with Lord Acton's famous statement, and he said this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Wow. And that's kind of generally what kicks around in our head. But I, I want you to reconsider power. Because I, I don't think power is inherently good or evil. You know, I think it's how it's used. And, and I, I want to take you to John chapter 19. You don't have to turn there, but this is where Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate is demanding an answer from Jesus. And, he, and G, he says to Jesus, you know, don't you realize that I have power over you? And what does Jesus say? The only reason, the only way you have power over me is because it's been given to you. And by saying that, Jesus is implying that all power comes from God. There's no power that exists outside of God. Now, at the moment we start to think that, it raises all kinds of implications when you think of despots and horrendous rulers and empires that have characterized human history. But it nevertheless is true. And when we go all the way back to Genesis, I want to do a little bit of biblical theology on power, very, very briefly, but to kind of set the scene for us. We go all the way back to Genesis 1. We see that part of humanity's created order and design is to have power. It is to have dominion. It is to rule all of creation. It was part of how God created us. But it was a boundary power. It was meant to be power under God's authority and to fulfill and accomplish God's purpose on the earth. We get not long into the story, Genesis 3, we see already as a result of sin and the curse, power is one of the most important things in all of that is severely corrupted. Now, power is characterized by resistance and rebellion and, and oppression and control and domination and usurping and, and, and a whole bunch of dynamics that are working around this idea of power. And then as the biblical narrative continues, we see the rise of tyranny and oppression, and we see uh, uh, humans using their power to enslave people and to uh, profit and selfishly gain from people and, and not serve and not fulfill God's purpose, but to dominate and oppress and control and build a name for themselves, as it were. And so the narrative continues over and over again, bringing death and destruction and pain and in a horrendous, inhuman acts one towards another. And we see this idea throughout the Old Testament of God sharing His heart for the oppressed and the, the marginalized and the poor and the weak and the orphan and the widow. And, and over and over again, we're reminded that God's heart is for the most vulnerable. Particularly in the book of Psalms, we see so many Psalms where God is described as the defender of the oppressed, the defender of the vulnerable, the defender of the widow and the fatherless. 
And so we see this, this hope that maybe one day things will be different. One day God's going to make even this corruption right again. And then we come into the New Testament and we come to Luke chapter 1 and to Mary's song. And, and there is this first glimpse that in the coming of Jesus, that God was going to reverse everything. And the mighty and the exalted and the powerful were going to be brought low. And the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed were going to be exalted and lifted up and raised up and given validity and identity and dignity and, and freedom. And so we see as the Gospels begin to unfold, the, the heart of God in Jesus' treatment of women and children and the poor and the weak and the marginalized and the excluded and the foreigner and the alien. And, and we see the heart of God in, in the compassion and the love that He shows people who were considered nobodies and nothing in Jesus' culture. And we see in the cross the Almighty Himself the most powerful in the universe, laying down His power, laying down His life. And we see this hope, and Jesus models it, and He sets the example that from now on, leadership ought to be characterized by servanthood. And Jesus wraps a towel around Himself, and He washes the feet of the very people He's created. And He says, now I want you to do like this. Be like this and live like this. And as the epistles unfold, we see the, the writers of the New Testament giving instructions to Christian men and women and families and masters. Leadership is now meant to look radically different. And it is to challenge and critique and push against the cultural norms of the day where husbands weren't required to love their wives or to serve them. And now they are. When leaders were, were characterized by control and domination and oppression, now Christian leaders are not. Parents who, who, who could use and abuse their kids were, said, no, you're not supposed to do that anymore. Masters who could beat their slaves and, and treat them cruelly and harshly and enslave them and dominate them and use them for profit were, were not supposed to do that anymore because Christ had come. And everything was radically different. That is the, the biblical understanding of power and, and how it is meant to work under the authority of God for the cause of Christ, for the glory of God. And as I say all of this, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, this sermon doesn't really relate to me because I don't really have any power. Or you would not put yourself in the category of thinking that you're a tyrannical oppressor in any sense of that word. So why are we talking about this foothold? At PCC, where we're all good, wonderful, loving Christian people who want to honor Jesus. Well, I want to, again, humbly suggest to you that perhaps we all abuse power in different ways. And the, the Bible, when it talks about these ideas, talks about it in a much broader way than maybe thinking of Hitler or Pol Pot or, or Idi Amin or some of these people that maybe you think of when we think of tyranny and oppression. So I want to challenge you to consider power and our relationship to it and our abuse of it and how maybe we've offended and hurt and abused and oppressed others through our power. And I want to give you kind of seven different symptoms. We've been doing this in this series and people have found this helpful. So I'm going to kind of give you seven symptoms. And the first three Maybe they wouldn't characterize you, uh, I trust not, maybe not now, but maybe in the past, maybe it has, and maybe it's something you need to bring before God in this journey. 
But certainly the last four, I think, might relate to all of us. So firstly, I guess, positional power or oppression. And we see this, you know, for instance, in, in, in um, domination, in neglecting your civic duty, in controlling behavior, in threatening and intimidating for personal gain. Examples of this are Pharaoh in Exodus 1, where he oppresses the nation of Israel. Ezra 34, the whole chapter is about God's shepherds, God's leaders that were fleecing the sheep, not caring for them, not protecting them, not defending them, um, just negligent and abusive. Um, in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 9, 1 Timothy 3, 2 to 3, Titus 1, 7, 9, where Paul is giving instructions to leaders within the church on how they're to be gentle and loving and caring. Um, uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 3, Peter's writing to leaders about how they are to conduct themselves, and he says, not lording it over, but serving them. So this positional oppression that can come. The second one is physical violence. Physical violence. And this, it might not just be beating somebody up. It certainly implies that Jesus told a parable in Luke 12 where he talked about a steward that had been entrusted the responsibility of caring for other servants. And when the master was away, he was negligent. He was eating and drinking, not caring about the master's return and even beating up the servants. And Jesus says, when the master comes back, he will cut that servant to pieces. But this violence could be abuse, it could be, again, physical intimidation, it could be things like rape, it could be things like bullying, it could be things like harassment, where you use your physical power to abuse and harass and intimidate people. And there's some strong, challenging words in Psalm 11, 4-7, and Malachi 3.16, and uh, Matthew 23 is Jesus rebuking the Pharisees because they were violent and they'd stoned the prophets and they'd killed the, the ones that God had sent to them. Physical violence. Third one, injustice. Injustice. This is a really interesting one. Uh, a lot of injustice is about neglect. It's about not doing the right thing. It's about not doing something that you should do to care for the oppressed and the vulnerable and the marginalized. It's, it's also um, a dishonest gain. There's a lot of stuff about, you know, getting something for nothing. There's a lot of stuff about ripping people off, not paying what you owe, trying to take a shortcut and cheat people. It, 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 it can show up as showing favoritism to some. Uh, James talks about that. So some verses on this one, Malachi 3, 5, and again, there's heaps. Jeremiah 22, 13 to 17. Uh, Matthew 23, 23, this is again Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Matthew 25 is the passage that you would know, which is the one, the one about the sheep and the goats and about Jesus rebuking people who didn't feed the hungry and, and, and provide drink for the thirsty and visit those in prison and in people in hospital. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 3-8 is a whole section on caring for widows within the church. Injustice. Here's an interesting one. Number four is financial oppression. Financial oppression. And this can show up in most of our lives, if we're honest, in ways like hoarding, selfishness, greed, self-indulgence. 
James 5, 1 to 6 uh, speaks directly to this. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 addresses this as well. Matthew 23, 25, again, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about how they've been oppressing people by withholding generously, hoarding and, and being greedy and selfish and, and not caring for the, the poor and the vulnerable. Number five, this one probably relates to the majority of us here, verbal abuse. Verbal abuse. And this can range from just name-calling, again, bullying people through your words, labeling. This can happen through lies and slander because you're using your words to get power over people. It could come through gossip, spreading rumors. It can come through aggressive and abusive speech, swearing at people. Uh, it could be intimidation, intimidating and harsh words where the Proverbs, they're full of things about a gentle answer. And we speak harshly as a way of dominating and domineering and controlling and oppressing people to get the upper hand. It can come as threats and curses. It can show up as constant criticism where we're just berating people. Australians, we, we have this idea called the tall poppy syndrome. You know, if somebody, we think somebody's going to get too high, we chop them down. And we do that with our words. We keep bringing them down because we think it's our God-given mandate to keep everybody else humble. That's just another form of oppression. Words, husbands, wives, parents, kids, friends, Employees, employers, how, how do we use our words? And James chapter 3 is all about it. And James says, you know, we, we praise God and with the same mouth we curse each other. He says, this can't be. And he talks about how our tongue, though it's such a small member, holds great power. The power of hell itself is in your tongue. Proverbs says life and death are in your tongue. That, that's how much power we have. So if we, if we have no other power, unless somebody has surgically removed your tongue and you cannot speak, you all have power. And as victims of this, many of us have been the recipients of somebody else's power over us through their words. But I wonder if you were to sit and think about how your words have damaged others. I wonder what would come to mind. Verbal abuse. Here's another one, judgment and contempt. This might even show up with you never saying anything, but just looking down on people. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, the same measure that you use will be used against you when it comes to judgment. If you are generous in your judgment, then God will be generous in His judgment over you. But if you're stingy and you're hypocritical and you're, you're always condemning others, then expect that from God. That's what Jesus is saying. In Romans 14, Paul, in the context of talking about Christian disagreements and conflicts within the Roman church over a whole bunch of gray areas like maintaining certain feast days and drinking alcohol and eating meat or vegetables and a whole bunch of other things. And Paul says, who, who do you think you are that you have the right to sit in judgment over somebody else? 
And again, sometimes in Christian circles, we, we have a wrong understanding of judgment. We think, oh, we can't say anything negative. We can't correct anyone. We can't rebuke anyone. No, the New Testament everywhere says that we ought to examine. We ought to care for one another, speak the truth in love. That's not what judgment is. There's a place for rightly examining. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, the very chapter where Jesus begins by saying, don't judge, he goes on to say, judge people by their fruit. So he's not saying, don't ever say anything negative. And sometimes people want to use that as a weapon, say, oh, you're judging me, you're judging me, just because somebody says, I'm concerned about this in your life. Let's understand what judgment is. It's not that. It's about this haughtiness and this pride and this conceit and this contempt that you have where you think that that person does not deserve the love and the grace and the mercy of God. It's not saying, I'm concerned about this behavior in your life. I'm, I, as I see the Scriptures, I'm, I'm concerned of where you're heading. And as a loving brother or a sister or a leader or a pastor, I'm calling you to repent and come back to God. That is not judgment. But judgment and contempt, James 4, again, James says, who are we to put ourselves in the place of God and determine people's motives and intentions in their heart? And yet, how many of us have been victims of somebody else's judgment? Let's flip it around and go, how many times have we judged somebody else? Last one, stumbling a weaker brother. Again, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this one. But the Scriptures are very clear. Matthew 18, Jesus says, if, if you stumble a weaker brother, it's better for you, it's better for you to have a big rock tied around your neck and thrown in the ocean. That's not a good place to be. Mark 9, Luke 17, they're all parallel passages that Jesus is addressing the same thing. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 to 13, Paul again in the context of talking about idol feasts and eating food sacrificed to idols and offending a brother or a sister in Christ. Romans 14, I mentioned again, Paul goes on to expand on this whole idea of stumbling someone weaker. And again, this is not, you know, in church circles, we often think, oh, I can't do anything that I don't have a problem with in case somebody somewhere is stumbled by that. Let me help in this very short period. I don't, want to, I don't have a lot of time to do this. We could do a whole sermon on this. But just, I want to say this. Stumbling the weaker brother, in particularly Corinthians, the weaker brother is the legalist. It's not the person who might have an alcohol problem or, or a gambler. Or, no, it's the legalist who thinks that doing those things is ungodly and sinful. And so when you, who are free, as Paul says, and he sides with the free, when he says, those of us who are free, he says, we out of love for that person because we know that they, we know, that's another critical fact, we know that they think that this is sinful, that I am going to withhold my freedom, my right, my power to do this out of love for them. And if we don't do that and we intentionally, knowingly go, you know what, I don't care, I don't give a rip about you, just because you're the legalist and you're narrow and you're stuck up, I'm free and I can do this. And if you're going to have a problem with it, that's your problem. If we have that attitude and we cause that person to go away and go, well, if they're doing it, then it must be okay, then I'm going to go and do it. That's stumbling and causing them to sin because they're doing something that's violating their conscience because you didn't love them. And Paul says, and Jesus says, that's not a good use of your power and your freedom.
So if you're anything like me, you probably tick a lot of those things. And you've done a lot of those things, particularly words, judgment, stumbling maybe. Why is this? It's like pride. Why is this so universal? Well, I heard a talk a little while ago that was really, really insightful. And this lady was saying that a lot of the times, oppression comes out of fear. Comes out of fear. And she took, took us to Exodus chapter 1 where she said that the reason Pharaoh decided to oppress Israel is because of fear. Because they were afraid that they were going to be taken over. And I, I heard this in Kenya, and I heard this at our men's night. It comes across like this. The question that people ask is, but surely if we treat people that way, if we give them more power, won't they take power from us? The, the Kenyan husbands would say, if we treated our wives with respect and equality and, and, and kind of dignity, won't they just dominate us? And so this, this tension is there where I'm trying to control you and dominate you because I'm so afraid that if I give you power, then you'll dominate me. It's this idea that if you kind of hold on to something really tightly, it becomes a fist because you're so afraid. You want to hold on to it so, so tightly. And we see this idea, it runs so contradictory to the Bible because in, in 2 Timothy, Paul says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and a sound mind. We, we don't need to live this way. We can live this way. And see, the gospel is, is the antidote. It's the remedy. It's what brings us from this to this. Because in 1 John, John says that when we understand God's love, displayed in the cross, and that when we realize that the punishment and the wrath and the judgment due us all has been dealt with in the cross, and that primal fear has been addressed in our heart, then that perfect love drives out fear, drives out this, and we can live like this. So I, I want to conclude by taking you to Philippians 2. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles. Philippians 2, 1 to 11, which is this incredible verse that reminds us of this truth. I'm just going to read this and just make, make three quick observations, and then we'll come around our time of reflection and prayer. Therefore, if you have any, enc any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Listen to verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests. That's closed fist. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's open-handed. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He's using that same idea. Jesus didn't close his fist around his rights and his power and his dignity and his glory. No. What did he do? Verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's open hand. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Three quick observations. Selfish ambition, self-interest are the things that will always corrupt power. Always, every time. And it will destroy our relationships. It gets in the way. Paul introduces this section by saying, if you want to be one in mind and one with each other, you've got to get rid of selfish ambition and self-interest. It will always work against you. So the remedy is to embrace a mindset that is completely different, the mindset of Christ Jesus, verse 5. Paul says, that is the only way to do community, Christian community, and handle power well is to reflect your Lord and Savior. And then he goes on to describe the, the greatest wonder of the gospel, that the almighty, all-powerful one opened his hand, emptied himself, came and became weak like us so that he could die. The only way up in the kingdom is down. Self-sacrifice, and I love the fact that it's Remembrance Day today. Self-sacrifice is the way of the cross. That's why Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. That is the only way. And to the extent that we receive this gospel, we receive this truth, we understand it, and we are worshipful in awe of Jesus for what He has done as He modeled this to take upon Himself our sin, our rebellion, our offense, our abusing power against Him, our defiance. As we understand what Jesus has done for us, then I believe it gives us the power and the strength to open our hand and not want to hold on to our power because the perfect love of God has cast out every fear in our own heart. See, the overriding issue with this foothold is offense and wrong that we've done to others, how we've used our words or our attitude or our power over others to hurt them and abuse them and offend them. And it could be as severe as physical violence against people or sexual abuse, or sexual violence, or some other form of obvious, overt power abuse. Or it could be a more subtle form where you've spoken lies, or you've gossiped, or you've slandered, or you've tarnished somebody's reputation, or you've used your words, or your attitude, or your, or your freedom to actually offend and hurt and wound. And so in response to this foothold, I want you to bring that to God and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I confess that. I've wounded and offended others. I, I repent of that and ask for your forgiveness and your mercy, which we're going to do. But there may quite, in your situation, quite be the need for you to do something more than that. And in Matthew, when Jesus talked about this idea, and he said, you know, while you're worshiping, and which is what we're going to do in a moment, if you remember or if you think of someone else who has an issue with you. Not someone who's offended you, but someone that you've hurt, you've offended, you've abused, and you remember them. I did that. I said that. That was really wrong and sinful. He says, leave your offering there. God's not interested in your public worship. Go. Make it right. Be reconciled. Do what you need to do to right that wrong. And you might not be able to do something about it today, but you may be able to do something about it. Maybe the person you've offended and hurt is no longer in your life. Maybe they're not even alive yet. 
but think about how you can make that right. And I love that in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus' story is exactly that. He has an encounter with Jesus. This guy cheated people, ripped people off. And after his encounter with Jesus, he says, man, I've been so changed. What does he do? He opens his hand. And he says, all the people I've ripped off, all the wrong I've done, I'm going to make right four, t- four times over. Th- that's maybe the response that you need to do. God, I, I don't want to just say I'm sorry to you. Maybe I need to actually say I'm sorry to somebody else. Maybe I need to ask for their forgiveness. Maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I need to acknowledge the wrong that I did them and to actually say I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And maybe there's something more that you need to do to make it right. Why don't you bow your heads and let the Holy Spirit talk to you. Father, I confess that I have sinned against you by using my power to oppress and hurt others through my words, attitudes, actions, and neglect. I repent of my sin. And take a moment to just name whatever the Holy Spirit showed you. Thank you, Lord. Let's continue. And renounce every foothold that I have given the devil through my abuse of power. Please forgive me and release me from any bondage that has come into my life. I ask you to help me seek forgiveness from those I have hurt and to do all I can to make things right. I confess that all I am and all I have is because of you. Thank you that Jesus emptied himself of his power, became a servant and died for me. I receive your perfect love that casts out all my fears. I surrender to you and ask you to fill me with the power of your spirit so that I can treat others the way you want me to. Please help me to use all that you have given me to serve others and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray for your blessing to rest on us as we go for us to live and walk in your grace and your shalom. May we, Lord, in our workplaces and in our families and in our communities, reflect your heart, your justice, your truth, your humility, your power used under your authority for your glory. Lord, let us be different as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and friends and colleagues. Lord, let us be different in this area of power that, Lord, we might point people to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.